how many people are just love the Olympics? It's, anybody here just when it comes on, that's all you can do? Yeah, so I, I get that way on some of them. I don't know why. Some of them I, I just get into it, and then some of them like, I don't want to watch that. But uh, every now and then I'll really get into the Olympics. And uh, my favorite Olympics that I remember watching was the 1984 Olympics. You know, I was nine years old. That was the, the Carl Lewis and Mary Lou Retton. Y'all remember that was such a big deal. And, and I'd never, you know, the last time there had been an Olympics, I was four. So, and, and, we, and uh, the Russians had boycotted the 1980 Olympics, so that wasn't that big of a deal. But when the 1984 Olympics ran around, came around, I just, thought, I just thought because it seemed like that's the way NBC was selling it, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And so I did not take my eyes off of it, and we just seemed like we watched the Olympics all the time and did the same thing uh, for uh, Seoul in 88 and, and so on. Was that right? Was it Seoul in 88 and Barcelona in 92? I think that's what it, what it was. Those were kind of the Olympics I truly remember. But you know, there's that, um, Dale, there's something buzzing. I don't know if we can find what it is. It's probably my guitar. There, whatever you just did, that got it. So remember that you turned that off though when we start to play again. But there's this vision that you have of a race being run. And Usain Bolt or these sprinters that are just so muscular and athletic and so fast. And what do they do when they get to that tape? They stretch their whole body out. You just see them leaning into that finish line with just an extra push of strength. They lean towards that tape to break that tape and to be the first one there. Some of them lean so hard into that that they fall down into the finish line. But it's their last burst. And you think of the way Paul talked about pressing on to the prize. We can really think of that image in our mind. And so today as we think of Paul's great struggle for this church and what his desire for this church was, I think that's what it was. I think he wanted them to run the Christian life in such a way that they were just striving, sort of like at the end of a finish line, the way you push and you reach for the prize. And so for us, I think the application, the big picture of this sermon is, and the big question for this sermon, is that the way you're running? Are we running in a way that reaches for the prize, that reaches for the finish line? Are you striving and reaching toward Jesus Christ this morning? Or has it just become a thing where you've just kind of sat down on the bench and are just letting things happen? And maybe you don't think too much about praying or reading your Bible or loving others or justice or all the other things that we think about when we think about how God has called us to live. Last week when Brandon taught and and preached, he spoke of Paul's suffering and his struggle for the church that they would know the preeminent Christ. And the verse that sums up that first chapter, and I sent Brandon a text message when I was reading that text, and I said, this could be the theme verse for a church. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And as we turn to chapter 2, you know, there's really a bad chapter break here. You know, and sometimes that happens. You know, uh, the chapter breaks were put in way after the fact. I mean, when you think about the way you write a letter, none of you write a letter and like, okay, chapter one of my letter, or chapter one of my email, or whatever. Those were put in later to help people study the Bible. 
And they said the guy that put the chapter and verses together was, did it while he was riding the horse. And so sometimes when the horse jumped and, uh, and, and he got a, his pen slipped and, and you've got a chapter break in a, in, a, in a bad place. But this one, really, the theme from the first chapter is bleeding over here into the second chapter. And so Paul is continuing with his theme of struggling for these churches and struggling in prayer for these people that he had never even met. Look what he says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle. Uh, I want you to know, the word there is agonia. I want you to know how great an agony. And the picture of that striving athlete is the picture, the word picture from this word agony. The way an athlete struggles to the very end of the race. He says, I want you to know what a great agonizing struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. Paul was concerned for these people in these churches. We went over last week and had such a great time at the revival in Seymour. And thanks for everybody that went over there because it was, it was great to have a, a, a full room of people and to have people that already knew the songs we were singing. That was also really helpful for us and encouraging. But we went over there and, you know, uh, Brandon, I was listening to a sermon and Brandon said, Chad's going over to the preach and it's going to be a lot different than what he's used to because Brandon knows it's a very small church. We got there, there's about 10 people that were there that morning, a couple of people in the nursery. Now we had larger services that evening, but this is a very small church. And you realize these churches that Paul was writing to in all these Roman provinces they were very small churches. They were churches that were so small they could meet in people's living rooms. And their houses were a lot smaller than ours now. So these were very small churches. And Paul is struggling knowing these churches. There's not very many of these believers. But there they are. And they're in these little tiny churches in these uh, cities like Colossae, which is sort of a backwoods town in the Roman Empire. And Paul's never even been there. But he's, he's worried about them because he knows false teachers have been coming in. And false teachers have been coming in and lying to them, and he was praying for them that they would not fall victim to these false teachers. Eventually, 30 years later, we know that the Laodicean church that Paul was praying for was struggling so badly that Jesus called their spiritual condition in Revelation chapter 3, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But maybe Paul's prayers were being answered because they actually were being rebuked by jesus himself jesus said he was standing there at the church outside the door of the church of laodicea knocking on the door and he said if you'll just open it i'll come in and so paul was praying for that church in laodicea he was contending for them in prayer and perhaps jesus getting their attention in revelation chapter 3 maybe it turned the corner for that church Paul was praying for people he didn't even know that he had never met. Do we do that? Do we have a heart for people that we've never met, that we don't know, but who need Jesus nevertheless? What about people across the world? We like to think of that, don't we? We can think of William Carey. He was a famous missionary. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. And he went to India in 1793. But before he moved to India, he was moved to pray for those people in India. William Carey was a shoemaker. And one day, when he was in his shoe shop, he's a cobbler, he decided that he wasn't thinking enough about the people all over the world that needed Christ. 
And so he took some of that shoe leather and he made a globe out of it. And so he would hold that globe as he prayed, his shoe leather globe, and he would pray for people all around the world that he had never met. One of the greatest things that we do at Secret Church, and a few of us participate in that every year, and it's a highlight, it happens around Easter, and of course we'd love to have you come. Uh, The problem is whenever I advertise it, people don't want to come because I say, hey, come with us. We're going to get together on Friday night at 6 o'clock and we're going to have a Bible study till midnight. People think, oh my gosh, I can't study the Bible for six hours. You can if, 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 uh, well, you can if you have enough snacks. All right, that's what we've learned. We've learned to know. What I've learned is that if I set out with a group of about 20 people to study the Bible for six hours, we're always able to get it done. And one of the things we do at Secret Church, and I'd love to have you join us next year, is that we are introduced to a people group somewhere in the world where it's illegal to be a Christian. And we're introduced to some people in the underground church where it's a struggle just to find other believers. They don't come together like this. You don't get to come to church when you get saved at these places because they don't trust you. They don't know what you are yet. You could be an infiltration, a spy for the government, whatever it might be. And so you just meet with one other Christian. The way you start off your Christian life is you meet with one or two other people until they decide that you've been discipled well enough to join the gathering, which just might be a Bible study in someone's living room. But we get together and we pray for those people where it's so difficult for them to be Christians. We pray for those brothers and sisters that we'll never meet, that that we've never met, we'll probably never meet them or never know them or what God is doing on this side of heaven. But I do think it's easier, and and, and of course that's wonderful. The reason we teach our kids about missions in Bible school and, and at Team Kid is because we want them to develop a heart for the nations around the world. The question is, though, do we have a heart for our neighbors? Think of all the people. We live in a small town. But think about the fact that there's people even in this town that we've never met. You know, Are we praying for them? Are we praying for those people that we've never met that might never come to our church? They might go to another church. But are we praying and are we contending for people? Are we struggling even to, lo- uh, even to love those that we've never met in only. I hope that we are. This is an area where we need to grow. Remember one of the things we talked about in our 2 Corinthians study, one of the verses that really stood out to me, that really struck me, was how as believers we are called to see the unseen. That's one of the crazy things about Christians. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. And we may not have much in common culturally with people across the world. We might not have much in common culturally with people who live across the street. But we want people all over the world and all over our city to know Jesus and to give glory to our King. And Paul says that's his prayer. He is struggling and praying for these people. Struggling in prayer. And I like that way of thinking about prayer as a struggle. That helps me. Does that help you to think about prayer as a struggle? Because how many of us struggle to pray? Prayer is a struggle. (laughs) We struggle with the words to say. We struggle to keep our minds sharp and focused on what we're thinking about. We struggle with being consistent in prayer. And Paul calls it a struggle. 
It's work to pray. Why don't we pray? Because we think prayer ought to be easy, and then when we try it, it's hard. And so it's easier just to say, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I can just listen to some music. Maybe I can just read a book. But Paul says here, prayer is a struggle. But the prayer of a righteous man, the Bible says, availeth much. Is it worth the struggle? It's worth the struggle. And that encourages me. And I I believe when I've talked to friends and I've talked to even people I don't know and been in conferences and, and school and things, one thing that we all say, and if we're all being honest, prayer is one of those really difficult things to do. Is it hard for me just to talk to Melissa? No, because I can see her. She's right in front of me. And we, it's easy to have that kind of conversation. The difficulty is fixing our eyes on what is not seen. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is un- unseen, since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. When we're on our knees in prayer, we're touching the eternal. We're praying to a God that we can't see, but we can see what He does. We can see Him reflected in uh, His people, the church, in other believers. And so we get on our knees and we pray for each other and we pray for the lost and we pray that God would receive the glory that He is due. How do we do that? Well, Paul's praying for them to be consistent in their prayer, uh, consistent as believers. He's praying and he's struggling and, and developing a vision and a desire for the Colossians, and he mentions the Laodiceans. And let's look at what he's saying here in verse 2 as he wants them to reach in their Christian life. He says, I'm struggling for these believers that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's mystery, Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul is saying, we've got our focus on this great Christ. Here's what I want for these believers in Colossae and Laodicea. I want them to reach. First, he says, I want their hearts to be encouraged. I want their hearts to be encouraged. I mean, he's hoping they'll be able to cope with any situation. That they'll be strengthened as with one, that word paraclete that we use for the Holy Spirit, that's the encourager. He uses that same word here. He wants them to be encouraged like someone who has a friend walking alongside them. He wants their hearts to be encouraged in that way. Uses similar language that we use to talk about the way the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. So he wants their hearts to be encouraged and he wants their hearts to be knit together in love. Fused. Welded together. Error and sin separate. Love and truth bind us together and hold us together. And then he wants their hearts to be encouraged to reach. To reach. To move toward. He says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Are we reaching? His desire for them was to reach, to move forward, to strain toward Christ. That they might have all the riches of full assurance and understanding. There are riches that come along with being mature in Christ. 
If you're stretching toward maturity in Jesus Christ, there are great riches that will accompany that. The way J. Vernon McGee said it, he said it's like wind in your sails. Uh, Full assurance is going through life with Jesus Christ and having full sails. That powerful Christian life as you're being moved along by the Spirit in your sails. We've made our decision to reach toward Christ. To set sail and let Him take us where He will. And when we can look up and see those sails full of the Spirit, driving us toward knowledge and understanding and riches and wisdom in Jesus Christ, we know we're, uh, we're, we're following God's will. And that is very encouraging and, and brings us great assurance. Paul wants them to know the riches of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Knowledge, the Greek word, epignosis. It's not just knowing information, but it's knowing something in a way that affects your character and your life. Does the way you know about Jesus, does the way you know Jesus, has it changed your character and has it changed your life? Is your entire life and your entire output affected because you know Jesus the way you would know a a friend or a person? It's not just information but it's a type of knowing that changes your life. To put it in other words, the knowledge of Jesus isn't something you just acknowledge or assent to, but it's something you submit to. This is a knowledge that controls your thoughts and your behavior. This was a word that the false teachers of that day would throw around. They said there's a secret knowledge that will lead to bliss and happiness and escape. But Paul said, no, the secret, the mystery, is Jesus Christ. So he wants them to reach for assurance, to reach for understanding, to reach for knowledge, and to know God's mystery, <coughs> which is not something that's just going to lead them into peaceful bliss and, 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 and to be uh, uh, more enlightened than all the people they know, but he's praying that they will know Christ. Paul said that he was determined to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Why? Why would that be the goal? Paul says, I want them to know all these things. I'm praying and I'm struggling that you would know God in this way. Look at verse 4. I say this. He tells them why. This is his great desire, his great struggle that no one may delude them with plausible arguments. There's always a danger for believers, there's always a danger for the church, that we would move away from Christ and the truth revealed in God's Word. There's always a danger. And when you see the church following the lead of the world, instead of the church following the lead of the Word, you know that the church is in trouble. And and why are we always so tempted to be led off, to be deluded by plausible arguments? The reason is that the philosophy philosophy of the world can often sound so good. It can sound smooth. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There was once an old church in England. This is a very famous uh, sermon illustration. It talks about a church in England. And there was a sign on the front of this church building that they had, they had taken. Uh, uh, you've seen 
when they do stonework and over the, over the doorway of this church, they had carved into the stone these words, we preach Christ. And then over the years, year after year, ivy began to grow up the building. And the ivy grew some more, and it covered up Christ. And so over the door it said, we preach. And then finally, the ivy covered up the entire sign, and the church died. Such is the fate of any church that fails to carry out its mission in the world. If we lose the fact that we preach Christ, that we preach Christ crucified, that we have an understanding, when we take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, that is what we're going to be doing. We all together are going to be proclaiming Christ's death. What are we doing when you hold up that cup? What you're saying is, I needed this blood to be shed for my sins. And the way that that happened was on the cross. We preach Christ crucified. And when you hold that uh, bread, what you're saying is this represents Christ's body and it was broken for me. In order for me to receive forgiveness and eternal life and forgiveness of my sins and the righteousness of Christ, what had to happen is Christ had to be crucified. He had to be the perfect sacrifice made on my behalf to atone for my sins, otherwise I have no hope. And it's interesting to me that we do this, and really we do this in a very similar way to other churches. Churches that no longer preach Christ crucified. Maybe it's some churches that preach Christ Maybe it's some churches that just preach, and maybe it's churches that are just dead and they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And yet it's interesting that every week in many of these churches, they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And even though it's been completely lost in their sermons and in their doctrine and in their teaching, because they no longer preach Christ crucified, they just preach everybody needs to be nice to each other. God's going to forgive everybody, and whatever else they preach that's not biblical the one thing they do that's still biblical is they hand out these elements, and as they do the Lord's Supper, what they're saying is, this blood has to be shed or there is no forgiveness of sins. That church may have stopped preaching atonement, substitutionary atonement, many, many years ago. But when we do the Lord's Supper, what do we preach? That Christ had to be our substitute. That He had to die in our place. Paul says to these Colossians, he says, though I'm absent in the body, I am with you in spirit, <laughs> rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. He says, your good order. And the picture there we have from that word is an army in formation. The lines that an army would form in battle that will not be easily broken. He says, I, I'm rejoicing to hear that y'all have an orderly church and that you have a firmness of your faith. You have stability. You're constant. You're steady. You're not just falling for all these different false teachings that are coming into your midst. Paul says, I want you to know I'm not there with you, but I'm with you in spirit. What's Paul saying there? He says, I'm on your side. I'm rejoicing. Just as he had rejoiced in his suffering as Brandon taught us last week, he's rejoicing now to see that they're holding firm to the truth in a disciplined way and that they were stable in their faith. So what can we make of this passage? What could our prayer be for each other? 
for those we've never met across the world and across the street? Could it be that we as a church would be encouraged, that we would be knitted together to reach for Christ? Are you reaching or are you just sitting tight? Scott and I have been doing a Bible study with the teenagers um, on Wednesday nights. And we've been doing a study, and it's called the Road Trip to Truth, I think is what it's called. And so we were kind of just talking about basic truths of, of, of can we trust the Bible? Is God's Word reliable? How do we know what is true? Kind of some high philosophical, uh, uh, ethical, and just you know what we would say epistemological. That's a big word that means how you, how you know things. Uh, we've been talking about those kind of truths. And it's been a really good study. And then whenever we're done, we go downstairs and eat ice cream or brownies. And so, and are, are you making all those things, Jessica? I know you brought the ice. Did you make the brownies? Or was it, what did we have last week? <laughs> Shannon. Okay, so we owe Shannon Moses for that joy of, you know, if you just think, well, if we can just make it through the Bible study, I know that there's something sweet down there. And that, that keeps me going. But we, we were standing down there eating our cookies or brownies or whatever we were eating, and as we were sitting there, I was walk, looking at these kids, and, and I just told them, I said, hey, you got, cause I was just thinking, I've known a lot of these kids, they were so small, and here they are, they're, they're you know, becoming young adults in, in many ways. They're, they're able to sit there in that study and think for themselves, and they're able to decide whether they want to follow Jesus Christ with their life, and I'm so encouraged that they're coming up there at 8 o'clock on a, on a Wednesday evening to study the Bible for an hour and 15, 20 minutes and go through this Bible study, which has been great. And Scott's doing a really great job leading us in it. And, but I told them, I said, guys, y'all got to decide. Y'all remember me telling you this Wednesday night? I was like, you guys got to decide if this is what you are or not. You know. And when you go to the refuge on Wednesday night, you're not just there just to take part in playing games. And say, you're there because you're a missionary. You're there because you're a leader. You're there because you're uh, called to share this with these kids that are out there whose parents don't take them to church, and they don't know anything about the Lord. And we talked about how they, several of them had gone on the mission trip. And what the kids said is, you know, why, why don't we do out at the refuge what we were doing in Germany, where before the, before the Wednesday night church starts, let's walk through and pray over the whole building. And they, they taught them that that was called plowing, plowing the soil getting ready to see what God might do, having that expectation that God is going to work in the lives of these young people. And you know what was so encouraging? Is that when I said that to the young people, you know what it it prompted them to do? It prompted them to have a conversation where they began to reach toward full assurance and knowledge and understanding of the riches in Christ. They didn't say, oh, we don't want to do that. They didn't say, we can't do that. They said, yeah, you're right. Well, could we have that same heart that our teenagers have? Whenever I stand up here and say, could we pray that we would be encouraged, that we would come alongside each other, that we would be striving and reaching like those runners crossing the tape, that we would be knitted together uh, in love for one another, welded together based upon the truth, to reach for Christ together? Are we reaching? What would reaching in your life look like? I ask those kids to be leaders, to be strivers. And today I ask Chad, Chad, will you reach? And I ask you, will you reach? 
Could I take these kids on a Wednesday night and say, hey, let me point out to you these adults. Could I point to you and say, watch what this person does. And they will, they will teach you how to reach for that full knowledge and understanding and the riches that come with maturity in Jesus Christ. Are you moving toward the riches that only come with assurance and maturity and knowing Christ? And if your answer is no, awesome. Let's repent and let's start reaching together. And if your answer is yes, keep striving. And if your answer is, I just think I need to get on, I think I need to start running the race. I don't know anything. What you're talking about, about Jesus and what we're about, what y'all are about to do with this weird stuff up here on the sheet uh, covering it up. It's like, I don't know what, what's going on. Here's what's going on. What we're saying is that every person in this world is a sinner who needs Jesus. And that includes all of us here. And there's only two kinds of people, those that have trusted him and those who don't. And so today our prayer would be that if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted that what he did on the cross was necessary for you to receive forgiveness and eternal life, we pray today that you would just cry out to the Lord, Lord, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I've lived in rebellion against you, but now I'm turning to you. I'm submitting to the fact that you are the Lord. I believe you died on the cross, that you were buried and that you rose again, that you ascended into heaven, that you're the king of the universe, and I'm going to submit to your reign and your rule. And if you will do that, the Bible promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can have eternal life today. And so I pray that you would do that today.